Hello and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Today's guest has an intriguing background and a fascinating hobby of freelancing, working with law enforcement agencies nationwide. Carrie Stewart Parks is an award-winning novelist and speaker as well as an internationally known forensic artist who travels around the country teaching forensic art courses to law enforcement professionals. In her 35-year career, she has worked with both local and federal law enforcement, including the FBI and the Secret Service, on forensic techniques in criminal investigations. These days, she also uses her expertise to create true-to-life fictional suspense novels. Her latest, Fragments of Fear, is available now wherever books are sold. So, Carrie, thanks for being on the show. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for having me. Now, just before we get started, tell people a little bit, for those who aren't familiar with this idea of forensic art, what, what does all of that encompass? Well, anytime you see the word forensic, it comes from the Roman Forum, where they used to debate law and politics and religion and so on. So eventually the term forensic went on to be the two things. First of all, debate. So a high school forensic team is a debate team. And then the second is anything pertaining to law enforcement or legal proceedings. So a forensic artist would do anything that would involve some kind of visual information communication. So that could be a composite sketch. It could be putting a face on a skull. It could be age-enhancing a, uh, a missing child. It could be trying to look at those blurry, bad photos from surveillance images and trying to come up with a face. It could be the courtroom sketching or demonstrative evidence, which are the courtroom trial charts, uh, crime scene sketching, just a whole slew of different types of skills that we bring to the law enforcement agencies. Yeah, and that's fantastic. And one that caught my attention as you were going through those had to do with skulls. (laughs) 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 And I remember going through some of your promotional video or uh, promotional photographs and so on and seeing that you're leaning over this one skull with clay on it i think and you're <laughs> you're um pr- probing it uh, you're reconstructing or something like that how does that even work well it's really interesting first of all we're sort of at the end of the line for identification uh now with dna and dental records and x-rays that's where we start usually but everything is a comparison system so it's not like we have DNA sitting in a database somewhere that we can compare it to. So we have to know where to start. So a composite or a drawing or a clay reconstruction is putting a face on a skull so that we can come up with possibilities that then we can look into further with uh, more uh, focused identification methods. Um, so what what happens is the skull comes to me. And um, the, there'll be an autopsy report with it that tells me a lot of information. Um, the forensic anthropologist would have looked at it and would say it's a you know, white male, 35 to 45 years old, uh, thus and such a build. Um, sometimes they can give me the hair length, whether it's curly or the color. Hmm. And from that, we go to a chart that tells us how thick the skin is at air, how thick the tissue is at any given point on your face. 
So if you take your finger and you push it against your cheek, you will find you've got lots of flesh over there. Some of us, like me, have a lot more than others. Um, But if you go over to the corner of your eye, right there at the eye orbit, you're literally touching the bone because it's so thin in that area. So the markers that we put on the face are made out of erasers, um, the strip erasers you put in a click pen. Okay. And we cut them in millimeters to precise lengths. Then we glue them on. We have another chart that says glue here, glue here. Uh, it's pretty no-brainer kind of thing. So we glue the tissue depth markers onto the skull, and then we build the clay out to that thickness. Hmm. And when it comes to the nose, here we're going to take our fingers again. If yeah. you place your finger at the base of the nose, push in and then push up slightly, you'll feel a little hard, uh, thin piece right there. That's your nasal spine. Your nasal spine dictates how long your nose is going to be and what it does. Does it go up? Does it go down? Does it go straight ahead? So we measure the length of the nasal spine, and it tells us how far out your no- the tip of your nose is going to be. Your nasal aperture on a Caucasian would be 5 millimeters beyond the nasal aperture. So we put a mark out there. Your lips run from gum line to gum line and cover the first six teeth of your mouth, your eyes, uh, your uh, your eye is about the size of a quarter, the um, iris is about the size of a dime, and um, we pop an eyeball in there, <laughs> which is when it looks really weird. Uh, that's the time you want to get freaked out because it's sitting there with no eyeballs or no, no eyelids, and it's really icky. That's when you do not want to read Stephen James. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Spooky stuff. So um, we just then apply all of the known things, which are the the face itself, and then some of the soft tissue we make approximations with. How about It takes that? about uh, one to three days. Oh, wow. And so once you have finished this reconstruction, um, what do you do with the with the skull with with the clay on it and so on at that point? Yeah, one of several things happen. Usually, we photograph it and then we take the clay off. But some departments and some people want the clay left on, so you you know you charge them for the clay, which is is just um, it's just a regular non-hardening clay. Hmm. Um, so we send it back with the clay on it. So it's it's up to them. If we take the clay off. Uh, the skulls that I get are cleaned by nature, so therefore they're not the spotlessly pristine, plasticky white looking like a cleaned skull. Okay, so when right. I pull the clay off, sometimes there's little bits of stuff in it, so I throw the clay <laughs> away. <laughs> it kind of grosses me out. It's like, oh, I don't oh, want to see that. <laughs> wow. Okay, so that's you know that's one aspect uh, aspect of it is this reconstruction. Another thing that you've done is like when I think of forensic art or whatever, I think of like police sketches. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've done that as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's actually we teach all of these topics. But yes, um, I was I do police sketches or composite sketches from the, the uh, witness's memory, the, the memory of a victim or witness of a crime. It takes anywhere from an hour and 45 to, gosh, I did one that lasted 10 hours once. Oh, my goodness. Um, and we interview the victim or witness and go through a series of questions. 
and they they don't have to actually describe what the person looks like per se uh, because we'll get really bizarre descriptions like he was weird looking, um, mm-hmm. he had a funny nose, uh, he had um, he looked like a geek. I mean, you know, what's that? I don't know. <laughs> so I can't presume to know what's going on in their head or by their definition what that means. So after they've described the events to me, I'll say, well, would you know the guy again if you saw him? Hmm. And if they say yes, then I have enough information to do the drawing. I never ask them, do you think you can do a composite? Because most of the time they'd say no. Or sometimes yeah. they'll even say, well, I'm not a very good artist. <laughs> so you have to say, no, no, I'll, I'll do the drawing. Um, so if they say yes, they would know the guy again if they saw it. Then I will hand them a series of mug photos or use a book, a mug photo book, and I'll say, go through this these pictures and just find me people that kind of look like the guy you saw. Hmm. And that's called recognition versus recall. It's easier to recognize someone that looks like someone else than it is to recall the details of why they look that way. So we build on the strongest form of memory. Uh, Once they've selected enough features, most people remember between four and five, then we start to assemble it. Um, some of my colleagues and my my students say, it's like a Mr. Potato Head. Uh, <laughs> we're going to put the pieces together. I, I never quite used that one, but, but I do have a Mr. Potato Head kit. But anyway, um, backup kit. Um, so we put the, the face together, and we ask them, you know, make corrections. What else, is, what else can I do? How can I fix it? Um, I never say, does this look good? Well, you know, I'm an artist, so it better look good. I always say, what can I change? Yeah. Be pushing them to make changes and corrections. And um, we work with them as long as they'll work with us. Now, I have the sense that if I saw someone and you came to me and you said, Steve, you know, can you maybe recognize this person again? And I said, sure, I think I could. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know where to start even to get you to create this, you know, this face that I'd seen. I just feel like I don't have a good enough memory to do that. Okay, so um, think about somebody we both know, okay? Let's let's take a mo- Amanda, okay? Oh, okay, sure. All right, so picture Amanda. All right, you got her in your head. Okay. Yeah. Um, tell, me a l- tell me a little bit about her. Oh, boy. Um, face or just? Yeah, her face. Oh, my goodness. I See, I don't know. I don't even know how to start. Uh, um, Caucasian, I guess. Um, and then also, um, <laughs> I don't know. I think of short because I'm so tall. Yeah. So I think short. of how tall people are and black curly hair. But And that's something, okay, black curly hair. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um you put me on the spot. I don't know. What what okay. are the types of things someone might say here? Well, you you actually did. What oh. I'm listening for is you're going to go through maybe three or four descriptors. Uh-huh. Not too many. Um that's that's very common. And I would then start with whatever you said first. So because people give us the information from their strongest memory to their weakest memory, hmm. from their most important to their least important. So strongest memory was her hair. So we will okay. start with that. So uh, once we get that hair going, you know, it's black and curly, then I may move your um, 
subjective curly to objective by saying, when you say curly, can you tell me more about that? Are you okay. meaning like um, tight curls? Um, is it close to the head curly? Is it? Hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. Okay, so then you'll say no, or they're more like like ringlet kind of curls. Okay, so good. And about how long were these ringlet type curls? And huh. I'll always use your words back at you, and you huh. would say, oh, maybe to her shoulders. I say, okay, alrighty. And um, thinking about what's going on um, with that hair, does are there bangs coming down, or can you see her forehead? Hmm. And so you just kind of work that way through yep. the process and, then. Yeah, and and you don't have to even come up with too many descriptors because, again, we would go, you would go be going through and finding pictures, and, the, and when you look at the picture, you'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, kind of like that. See how that goes like that? Uh-huh. Um, and because if the, the words themselves can be like, well, she had a mm, with that, uh, uh, and then the uh, mm, with that, and, you know, <laughs> they can't even it, let alone try to figure out what they're saying. But if they point to it, say, well, it was kind of like that, I can draw that. And it has all the shading in for me. It's got the location and size and all the information I need as the artist. And you're just going, it kind of looks like that, only wasn't maybe so wide open. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, have you found that women tend to notice different characteristics in this process than men do, or is that not even a paradigm that really works? Uh, it depends um, uh-huh. on uh, the – probably one of my better witnesses tend to be hairdressers. Because um, huh. they'll go, oh, his skin was just – it was – it could have used a moisturizer, and his oh, hair had been – you know, and you're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they tend to be pretty good. Uh, sometimes they – make a point of remembering it um and sometimes it, it gets to be really funny but you really can't laugh yeah um, i had this uh can i tell a worse story here um it was what they thought was going to be a bombing and a fellow came into a gun shop to buy bomb making equipment oh, wow. and the the guys that own the store kind of freaked and when i went to them uh to to have them describe what this fellow looked like, the owner walked in, and I was seated in the back, surrounded by 5,000 rifles, and he <laughs> pointed at me, and he goes, I'm going to see you in heaven. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's going to kill me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just came in and sat down. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And when he, he was pointing to my cross, and he said, I'm oh. Chris, he's going to see me in heaven. But, oh, my gosh, it really scared me there for a few minutes. If <laughs> We had been surrounded by so many rifles. So, um, so yeah, um, men can be really good witnesses. Women can be really good witnesses. And yeah. Sometimes not. It just it just depends on the person. Sure. It also depends on how long you saw the person and what was the impact on you personally. So now, if you just saw them as you walked out of a store, there's not much impact there and there's not much time. But in a case of, say, a homicide or a rape or something like that, you're talking usually a long, long period of time. Oh, really? Yeah, longer. Um now, I know that you uh, have mentioned a couple of times students, and I know that you teach uh, at you know a variety of things all across the country. Um, my skill level as an artist is about below a kindergartner's. Ah. 
Okay. And so, like, I can almost draw stick figures that you can tell the difference between a guy and a girl, whatever. My my drawing is terrible. Could you even teach someone like me how to do sketches and stuff? Absolutely. Really? People that can't even draw their own conclusions. Yes. Um, The uh, drawing is a learnable skill, assuming you do not have a learning disability. And I Uh kind of lump it all under dyslexia, though I'm sure that's, uh, that's just kind of an umbrella. But basically, some people don't see shape. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's a foreign thing to them. So if you if you were to take your finger and and draw a like a frowny curve, you know, going down, right. um, and I say, can you see that? And they'll say, yeah. I said, what's it doing? Well, it's curving down, and you can see that. Yes, I can see that. Now draw it, and they'll do it reverse. Hmm. So they'll do it the opposite way. That's I've and, never heard of that before. Yeah, it's it's like shape is really really. Uh, difficult for them. But we have a template that describes the average human face, and we take you through every single facial feature and show you how to render it. So that even, I mean, I'll have a few people, uh, maybe two every year total, Uh that are still struggling by Friday. Most are drawing extremely well. That's it's so interesting, yeah. Yeah, I need to take a call. I think I need to take one Absolutely. of your Absolutely, yeah, that would be great. Um, now, I understand that you were mentored by New York Times bestselling author Frank Peretti, um, yeah. who's also been a guest on the show here. Um, what were? Did he give you any storytelling secrets that he passed along to you? Because over the last few years, your books have gotten rave reviews, and you've won a number of awards and been finalists for different awards, and I was wondering, what secrets were passed on to you through this? (laughs) (laughs) Frank mentored me for eight years. I'm a slow Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, What he would do is uh, I would... I met with him twice a week, uh, usually Tuesdays and Thursdays, for maybe a two-hour block of time. I would take what I had written, and I would bring a copy for me, a copy for him. I would have my highlighters and my Post-it notes and and my pen, and I would read it out loud, what I you know, in front of me, and he would follow along. And if he started to make a face, (laughs) I'd stop reading and go into a panic mode. Oh, Um, funny. (laughs) <laughs> he uh, yes, he taught me literally everything um, about writing, and then what he would do is uh, he would kind of help me, and then I would identify something I was struggling with it with, and he might give me a little exercise of something to do to help me get through that. But a lot of times I would take uh, you know if I was I felt I wasn't getting that, whatever it was. Maybe it was dialogue, or maybe it was um, description, or maybe it was uh, keeping the the story moving. Sure. And I would take, I would either go to a writer's conference, I went to about 10, Uh, I would buy a book on it, like yours, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm reading right now, which I made you sign. Uh, I would buy a book on it. 
I would not just read the book, I would consume it. Unfortunately, when I'm done with a book, um, a nonfiction book, it's going to have highlighters, it's going to have scribbled notes, it's going to have post-it notes, it's going to be, it's, some of them are held together with rubber bands. But I would read and absorb it and just, just focus on that one thing until it became a second nature. And hmm. then I would identify the next problem that I was having. Maybe it was, uh, I don't know, uh, plot points or... Um, the climactic moment or whatever, because there's so much to learn. It's not just your story. That's just where you start. The rest is writing it so that other people can understand what you see in your head. Because as long as it's in your head, it's not going to do anybody any good. So you've got to get it out there, but not in a way that makes sense to you, because to you, all of your imagination is filling in everything you haven't put on paper. Yeah. So you have to learn how to put it on paper. Everything is going on in your head. Now I love how seriously you take the craft of of writing. You know, a lot of people sort of think, "Oh, I'll just be a writer and I'll write a story and write a book," and, uh, and then they think, well, "Maybe I'll just self-publish it or whatever." And however, public people publish doesn't matter to me. But what I've found is very often when they self-publish, they publish too early. Yes. Far far too early when it hasn't been maybe edited and rewritten a number of times to really get it to the quality level that would be sort of expected. And and so one of the things I really appreciate in what you were just describing is, you know, it took years for you to really feel like you came to the place where the novel writing was at the at the point where you you were happy with the quality. And that shows a lot of perseverance and persistence. I well, I, I joked. I, I spoke to the Christian uh, Writers Conference this year, and I joked. I said I I wrote my first story in about six months, and I figured it was ready for publication. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was quite quite brilliant. Um, the more I write, the more I realize how really bad I am. Um, the it is a craft. It is absolutely a craft. And what I ended up doing is. I ended up challenging myself at each stage. And so after working with Frank for so many years and working on it and working on it and working on it, um, I got to the point where I thought, if I self-publish, it means I'm giving up. I haven't written the best thing I could possibly, possibly write. Hmm. And it's something that maybe my mom, bless her heart, if she were with us, mom would love. But I didn't want that. I wanted to write a story that was unique and different and one that major publishing houses wanted to fight for that was my goal i wanted to have i wanted to go to auction i wanted to have them want my writing and the only way that was going to happen is if i kept working on it and working on it until i hated everything (laughs) (laughs) when you spend eight years on a manuscript you hate it so bad what was funny is the first manuscript did not get published. Um, it, I had an agent, and they shopped it around, but it was 14 no's. And the agent came back and said, shall we go to smaller publishing houses? Or, And I said, no, I think I can do better. I said, let's hmm. put it aside. I've got another book in me. Let me write that. And so I wrote that one. Then about eight months later, I went back and reread the one we were trying to sell. Yeah. Blah! It was oh, awful. No. <laughs> it was just awful. I kept one scene and just threw the whole thing away. It was so very bad, and I'm so glad that that one didn't sell. Uh, so I also 
what's unique is I do read the reviews that people give me because hidden among the the arneriness of some people, there are things that I need to learn there because mm. these are readers. And they'll say, you got too many people in your book. Well, I probably do. And is, and that would be something that Frank would have told me. Or um, your the romance in your book isn't much. Well, yeah, I could have told them that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, okay. Um, they may say, well, uh, that wasn't as clear as it should be. Okay, take that to heart. Write it better. Do it better. People are not mean to me because they're mean. They're wanting me to do better, and I just have to always take it in that light. Do better. Fix that. Make it better. Frank got to the point where he would just go, that was terrible. Fix it. (laughs) 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 Pretty pretty much to the point, and I would take it and rewrite it. But that's your flexible mind. You have to be flexible and thinking, well, is this absolutely the only way it can be presented in this order and like this? And usually the answer is no. There may be a better way of doing it. You know, I don't read reviews of my work. You have a much tougher skin than I do. I try to (laughs) avoid that at all costs um, because then I just get angry at people. What? Why didn't you like, you didn't like my book? Or if they liked it or loved it, then I'm like, oh, well, of course they did, which is so (laughs) stupid. (laughs) Well, I I was a fine artist first. And I I joke that I had the distinction of being rejected from both an art show and a publishing house on the same day. Oh, I'm a multi-talented rejected person. So as an artist, yeah, you get tough skin because people go, oh, seriously? So how long have you been painting? (laughs) So I developed it that way, and once I got through a few of the shocks, I usually get the giggles when I read some of the reviews are all go, huh, <laughs> didn't see that one coming. <laughs> well, that's a good attitude to have about it. Well, when you live in the boonies, you got to laugh about something. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I know that your books are loosely based on some of the cases you've worked on over the years. What's, what's one of the most fascinating investigations that you've been involved in? Oh, wow. Gosh. Um, one group which became... The underlying story which on the second book I wrote, The Bones Will Speak, uh, is about a group called the Phineas Priesthood. Uh, the Phineas Priesthood is the most violent of all of the uh, neo-Nazi Christian identity movement, hmm. which um, I study in the book. I, I talk about its origins in England. It, it was a, a belief system that started in England where they believed that the the Jews were not God's chosen people, but the Anglo-Saxon and British people were God's chosen people. Now you can hear the you know Nazi drums behind that one, but yeah. basically, um, it, this was in the eighteen hundred. Excuse me, eighteen hundreds. It came across to the United States and it picked up the more anti-Semitic and racial overtones, and became the belief system behind. The Aryan Nations, the Ku Klux Klan, the Phineas mm-hmm. Priesthood, the, all of those groups came out of that particular movement. And in it, they teach that, um, that Adam and Eve produced the white race. Um, Eve and Satan produced the Jewish race. And that black people were 
uh, mud people without any chance of redemption. And that's wow. literally what they teach. Um, it's an extremely, um, just a vile uh, belief system. Yeah. Um, and reading it was very difficult um, because I had to get in the mindset of what would make somebody look at that particular thing as, as, a, as a world view. Yeah. And then present my character, uh, Gwen Marcy, as running up against him. The Phineas we had the in Hayden, Idaho, was the home of the Church of Jesus Christ of Aryan Nations. Butler mm. uh, wow. was over there, and I was at the trial where they brought them, the Southern Poverty Law Office brought them to trial and was the courtroom sketch artist for them. Huh. And um, the... Phineas Priesthood also shot my dad. They didn't kill him, but they shot him. So wow. it was pretty close to home kind of thing. That, yeah. The, the Aryan Nations compound was probably 35 miles away. Huh. Um, and you'd see them out to lunch, you know, in their, you know, blue shirts and all that. And they, they would have marches and all kinds of stuff. Now, are they still around, or was this many years ago, or...? It was in the the 80s to the mid-90s. The Phineas Priesthood, the the specific group that I wrote about, was a cell in Spokane. What makes them unique is that they're not actually a group. It's by their behavior they are deemed the Phineas Priest. So Hmm. um, Oklahoma City uh, was an act by a Phineas Priest to blow up the... um, Murrow building was huh. an act by the the Phineas priesthood, so they would acknowledge the acts. So they were setting bombs and robbing banks over in Spokane, and I ended up doing a lot of of the drawings for the FBI. And so then you had to climb into the mindset of someone with this view to write your villain. Yes, yes, but and in all of them, I try that one. I wasn't too successful, but uh, in in all of my books, at least the first three, I tried to get into the mindset of very specific uh, people with very strong belief systems. Uh-huh. So the first one was about the fundamentalist Mormons, which I knew a lot about living in Idaho. The second one was the Phineas Priesthood. The third one was the Eastern Kentucky Appalachian Pentecostal snake handlers. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> and we went did to you ever go handling. to any snake handling yes, churches? Did. Oh, you we did, did, huh? We did, yeah, Jello, West Virginia. Um, so yeah, yeah, and and I took all of that stuff and put it in the book. Um, the next one, uh, Thomas Nelson said, you can't do any more religious groups, <laughs> which was too bad because I was really moving my way toward the the Christian Science, who have a a blue system that. Uh, something called malignant animal magnetism that mm. makes you able to think somebody to death. And I thought, wow. that's cool. <laughs> that that's pretty interesting. <laughs> well, that would make a good story. How about that? It would. I know. I haven't heard of that before. Today. Yeah. Well, that's what she, Mary Baker Eddy thought. That's how her husband died. Huh. I remember I wrote a book called Placebo a number of years ago, and it dealt with the power of belief. Um mm-hmm. And dealt some with voodoo, where mm-hmm. you kind of not cast a spell on someone, but you can, you know, it, it um, 
anyway, it has to do with the the power of your curses and so on like that in some yep. cases. Yep. And so um, so I met with a voodoo high priestess when I was researching the book, and it's okay. like you. I try to, you know, get <laughs> the inside scoop on it, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very different, well, very different. Yeah, um, and I tried to present each of them with the exception of the Phineas Priesthood. I tried to present their thought processes, how they came to that yeah. from their standpoint. There was no, There's not a judgment in the stories, yeah. um, with it, except like you said, Phineas Priesthood. But uh, I would present, this is how they see themselves and this is what they believe. And yeah. I would leave it up to the reader to determine, is that a reasonable, uh, can you see that happening? Is that reasonable? And I think that that's why readers liked the books, is that I'm sure. not saying this is bad and, and let's let's point fingers and all that sort of thing. I leave it to the reader. Yeah, that's that's cool. I, uh, I when I met with this lady, you know, this voodoo lady. Anyway, I said <laughs> I want to write about the voodoo thing, and she said, "Oh, basically, voodoo is always misportrayed in books and movies and stuff like that. They're always." make it look bad and stuff like that. And so I said, well, this is your chance. Yeah. I'm sitting right here. Yeah. Tell me your, you know, yeah. your perspective, yeah. because I want to be honest how I portray it. And, you know, it's not an attack piece. I just, I want people to see what you really believe. Um, yeah. So, yeah, interesting stuff. So, so you wrote the Phineas Priesthood. Now, which book was that in? It was the second one, The Bones Will Speak. Oh, yeah, The Bones Will Speak. Yeah, yeah. And now the recent one that just released is called Fragments of Fear. Fragments um, of Tell us a little bit about this book. Well, it again, in keeping with um, strong belief systems, it takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's about a woman named Evelyn Yvonne McTavish, but she actually hates her name, so she <laughs> just goes by Tavish because it really irritates her mother. Um she is struggling to put her life back together again. Her fiancé committed suicide, though she believes he was murdered. Nobody else believes her. Everybody thinks she's nuts. Um, she gets a phone call one day, and they said, we're, we're calling from the dog pound here, and uh, the microchip on this dog came back with your name on it. We need you to come pick your dog up. Well, the problem is that Taffy has never owned a dog, uh-huh. a, and she denies that it's hers. And I said, well, either get the dog or we're going to kill it. Yeah. So she's in love with the idea of dogs. I mean, she goes through her head like Lassie and, you know, all the fictional dogs and so on. And she recovers the dog, realizes she knows who it belongs to, and when she tries to return it, she comes across the man who has been murdered. And... um her life turns completely upside down after that. So it's about her journey, both to find the truth of the dog, what's going on. She also is, in the beginning of the book, she's very much a new agey, has a crystal and checks her horoscope, and she's quite neurotic, um, bites her fingernails down to the quick. And the challenge in this book was I wanted to write a character that was deeply, deeply flawed, but I, I needed the reader to still like her, which is really hard when you have, you know, a person that's neurotically gnawing on their fingers and and checking their horoscope and so on. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, just to make her likable enough so the reader would stay with the story long enough to see her start to change. 
she becomes a target. She crosses paths with an undercover FBI agent, which is their my slice of romantic part. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, she uh, she learns an awful lot about herself, about art, and about life through this story. And you wove some of your experiences in here, right? Yes, yes. I, uh, one of the themes is negative space, which is a term that's used principally in watercolor. You paint mm. the negative space, and if you get the negative space correct, then the positive space always has that uh, will be correct. And she applies that to life, that uh, there are negative spaces in life. There are people that you don't see, um, the homeless and so on. I worked uh, and asked uh, a woman who runs Christ Kitchen down in, in Texas about the homeless because that's what her mission is. And she gave me a lot of insight and information. Hmm. Um, it had uh, information on the Anastasi where I was fortunate and blessed to have a student who was uh, a Ph.D. Uh, archaeologist, anthropologist, sorry, she's an anthropologist, uh-huh. that works uh, and gave me the information about how to run a dig. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I did a lot of that type of thing in it. Now, um, this was this your fourth book, is that right? Five, four, sixth. Your sixth book. Sorry about that. I wasn't aware of all of them that came before. So, well, congratulations. I know that one, yeah. you know, is just released and it's available, and we want people to to check it out, Fragments of Fear. Um, now, I wanted to ask you about a little bit about crime shows on television. Mm-hmm. Do you watch any crime investigation dramas, or do the inaccuracies just stress you out? Um, a, a little bit of both. Uh-huh. Um, I watch some shows, uh, a lot of the true crime ones, because oftentimes there's one of my students that will appear. I'll go, oh, that's what's and so. Go, look, come here and look who's there. Oh, um, wow. Sometimes it's a case, uh, like on some of the forensic files, sometimes it's a case that I've actually worked on, but I never know that until uh-huh. it's on. And I was like, oh, wow, look, there it is. Um, a lot of the fictional ones, uh, Bones, I think, is one of the classics. Um, the problem is that it's just so out there. Uh-huh. And the biggest thing is that what I think most crime shows get wrong is that the whoever you are, like I'm the forensic artist or I'm the Emmy or whatever, we do a part of the story. We right. do our little piece. And it's usually the detective that does it, runs it from beginning to end. But in, for example, Bones, you see the woman who is supposedly the, the anthropologist is running around with a gun, and she's investigating, and she's doing this, and she's doing that. Um, and that's, that's just not accurate at all. Right. Um, it's also uh, more grinding and hard work than they show. It's not nearly so glamorous, um, especially if you try to run uh, any kind of crime scene on a hoarding, somebody who's a hoarder. It's like, mm. oh, you're kidding me. That's just so bad. Because um, <laughs> uh, there's so much evidence that you have oh, to yeah. Just yeah. Imagine walking through a house where there's one path and everything else is piled to the ceiling. Yeah. And you think, okay, what is important in this room? <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. Oh, um, wow. So I, I do watch some. I, I uh, I like Criminal Minds, but it tends to be really gory and bloody. Uh-huh. 
and they kind of get out there sometimes on some weird storylines. Um, and now my husband worked for the FBI for 13 years as an artist in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. And he worked with the behavioral science people uh-huh. and um, went out on some of their cases with them. So I oftentimes can get information from him as well. Oh, that's that's great. Now, with your stories, um, these are all fictional, but you draw in some of your experience. Were there ever times where you were frightened of what you were writing, maybe with the Phineas Priesthood or something, where you were like, this is really disturbing, and it's coming from my own mind? Oh, yeah, I'm always disturbed by what things I come up with, I think. Oh, that? really? Yeah. No, I think that on the, the Phineas Priesthood, the one that is I kind of have to grin over is that I went on Amazon. I was looking up books, you know, because I, I read a lot when I'm researching this story. That takes me a long time. And I was trying to find material about the evolution of the Christian identity and all that sort of thing, and I found some pamphlets and booklets they were okay. like the uh, uh, you know statement of thus and so the de- declaration of war by thus and so, and I thought oh, I'll just order some of those because that's coming from them. Uh-huh. So I ordered it and it arrived, and it was from a bookstore in Nevada that sent it directly to me and then said, "Oh, it's so good that you wanted our materials. We'll be up in your area coming up and we'd love to meet you." And I thought, "Oh my gosh, and they got my phone number and my address." And ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> really crazy. You huh? me there. It's like, "Oh no, what have I done?" Oh, so yeah, that that was a little on the spooky side. When you say that, it it just reminded me of the story of a writer that I knew many years ago. She was probably in her late 70s, and she was just a very gentle, um, unassuming woman. And so she was flying through an airport, and she realized that she had her hair dryer in her, <laughs> in her bag. Yeah. And yeah. so she said to this, the lady, just innocently, just like you, just so innocent about what she did or whatever, she said, now don't be surprised if something in my bag looks like a gun. <laughs> <laughs> And so there's this this is probably back before you know uh 9/11 but you know a siren goes off and they're they're grabbing her and what what it's a gun so it's like no no don't say that no then well, right I, I after did, that I can't remember Well I did fly a couple of times with skulls um carry on Oh really I kept thinking that somebody would say something you know like sure. there's a skull in your bag or something. But because I, the way I pack them, they're going straight up and down, so you can't actually see the skull. It looks like they look like bowling balls. But I was going to an ACFW, uh, American Christian Fiction Writers, meeting in uh, maybe Nashville or something, and I had a, a, a drawing model in my bag that I was going to use as a prop for my speech. Uh-huh. And it was of a head and shoulders of a woman and when I put my bag on the uh, the, the uh, X-ray machine uh-huh. and walked through, the guy looked at me and he goes, there's a head in your, your suitcase. Uh-huh. And I said, that's right. That was the last person that asked me about that. Oh, funny. That's a good <laughs> they line. Were, they were just, no, no skull ever got him to say anything, but this plaster cast got him going. That's, pr- that's crazy. So... 
So, Carrie, you spent a lot of years really honing your craft and working as a um, as a student, I would say, of the craft of writing. And what are some of the things that maybe you've learned um, over time that you that maybe aren't being taught to aspiring authors today? Well, this is what's interesting is uh, Rick and I bought your two. <laughs> you didn't put me up to this. This is our own. Rick and I, after hearing you, Rick's my husband, sorry, uh, after hearing you speak, uh, went out and purchased your two of your books. And we, he, I gave him one and I took the other one and we started reading through it. And we decided that if you, uh, let's see, story one. Story Trump's structure, maybe? That's when he's reading, and I'm yeah. reading the... Trou- troubleshooting your novel? Yes, troubleshooting yeah. your novel. We decided that if our critique group, which we go to, would just read uh, troubleshooting your novel, they would increase their ability. They would just jump ahead light years. Because oh, that's good. Thanks for saying so that. There's so many yeah. really uh, things that you don't read everywhere. Yeah. Some things, yes, I read it a lot, but there's there's so much in your book that was that made me actually go back and look at different things that I was doing and so on. So it's it's a lifelong it's a lifelong series of steps, and I think the thing that isn't taught enough is to have a flexible mind hmm. and to not take the first easy out of running over and getting it published because you figure nobody wants to read it. Yeah. Because once it's published, nobody will want to read it then either. Um, yeah, that's a good I point. mean, and you really only have one chance. You really want to have whatever's out there to be something awesomely wonderful and to have people want to read your stories. And I, don't, I think that we tend to back off and say, oh, yeah, that's nice. Oh, you published that. That's nice. We tend to let that go instead of saying, why didn't you stay with us longer? Yeah. I think pushing people a little bit more, pushing them to do better, uh, to say, no, that is not brilliant. You don't do anything <laughs> brilliant the first time. You are not playing a, a piano in Carnegie Hall just because you've learned chopsticks. You're, yeah. It's a lifelong craft that you need to master and keep working at it. I mean, you remember seeing Frank Peretti in the front row of your program, taking <laughs> notes on your talking. So if Frank Peretti, the dean of Christian fiction, 18 million books, is sitting there listening to you and writing notes, it tells you that it's not, you know, you mastered it in a week. No, it is a lifelong process, and you need to keep pushing yourself and challenging yourself to do better. I think that's a good word. You know, I I appreciate the kind words and everything, but but also just this idea of being a lifelong learner. I think I'm reading a book on the craft of writing right now, and I've been doing this, you know, for 23 years. And mm-hmm. so, what's the attitude that we have? Is it that I'm there? I've, you know, I've, I'm, I'm there. I've learned to write and stuff. Or is it what you just said, lifelong learning, where we continually try to strive to do better and to write with excellence? And mm-hmm. you know, that's really kind of the whole idea behind this podcast is we want people who are readers to understand what goes into the craft of writing or films and so on, but also just to encourage those who might be aspiring to really take their craft seriously. 
Absolutely, absolutely. It reminds me when I would teach, uh, when I would actually, when I would go to uh, another person's watercolor workshop, because I teach watercolor as well, but I would go to other people's watercolor workshops to get inspired myself, even though I've painted in watercolor for <laughs> for longer years than I've been around. I've been painting watercolor since 1968. So, uh, but I would go to be inspired and to have some fresh looks and so on. Well, people would go to these workshops and they would try something different that would be challenging. It might be a different subject or different colors or different paper. And they'd try it a little bit and then the next day they would show up with a painting they'd been working on for, you know, a month or two months or five years or whatever. And they would go back to what they're comfortable with instead of mm. challenging themselves to try something new, because you have the rest of your life to learn how to master it. You just need to get in there and learn how to do it and then learn how to master it. And it, it, it just doesn't all come at the same time. It, it, yeah. Some things come easy. Some things are going to take you a while. Some things you may never get. Well, <laughs> excuse me, that's a, good, that's a good reminder and a good place to close up, you know, just to continue to focus and learn and grow. And, um, Carrie, I really appreciate your time, your insights, just taking time. I know that you're working under a, another deadline, so I really, truly appreciate the gift of your time here today and um, the takeaways that you gave us. I think it's going to be great reminders for people about striving for excellence in this art form. Super. Thank you. Yeah. Now, where can people connect with you online, Carrie, if they want to follow your career or look at your other books that you have? Well, everything is pretty simple because it's all revolving around my name. Uh, so my email is my name. It's Carrie, spelled the right way, C-A-R-R-I-E. The right way, okay. There, yes, the old-fashioned Carrie, uh, at Stuart Parks. And the Stuart is spelled the Scottish way, S-T-U-A-R-T-P-A-R-K-S. Dot com. That's also my Facebook page, my web page. It's all Carrie Stewart Parks. Great. So, and I love to talk to people. I love to talk to readers. Um, I love to help people out as they go along. And and um, so and it, and I I can't say enough about how thrilled I am to be here and to be talking with you. Oh well, thank you very much. And. It's our honor to have you on, on the show, and we want everyone to rush out and buy Fragments of Fear if they like um, some suspense with a touch of romance, maybe. <laughs> just a hint, yeah. yeah just a hint. And um, so thanks, Carrie, and so thanks to everyone for tuning in and listening. Uh, my website and my books are available at stephenjames.net. For more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, you can click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.